Yale University when the book was published. It was turned into a film in 1970, starring Ryan O'Neill and Ali McGraw. BBC News. On midweek tomorrow morning, Libby Purvis meets the legendary record producer Tony Visconti. Since the late 60s, he's worked with an array of great artists from the Moody Blues and Mark Bolan to Morrissey, U2 and David Bowie, producing some of the most famous albums of the last 40 years. He's one of the guests on Midweek, which you can hear at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning and again at 9.30 in the evening. But now on Radio 4, the writer John Ronson continues his series with a story about a photographer's relationship with a woman that would lead him down a dark and dangerous path. This week's episode is John Ronson on Living in a Movie. One day a few years ago, an English photographer called Jason Howe was travelling through Colombia. I used to travel by bus and we stopped in a small town and I spotted this girl leaning against the counter and she was very attractive and I smiled at her, she smiled back and I explained to her that I was going to Puerto Assis and she told me that she was from that town and she said that her father has a little sort of roadside bar why don't I come and stay? That evening after we first met we walked sort of hand in hand down to the river after we had dinner with her family and we kissed and then we turned around and walked back to the house. She seemed very nice, she liked her a lot. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. She's sort of sweet. Yeah, you know, very friendly, laughed easily and she seemed very confident. Her name was Marilyn and they were about to embark on what must surely be the worst holiday romance imaginable. Who was Jason and what was he doing in Colombia? I'd been working in a camera shop for eight years. Where? In Ipswich, in Suffolk. And I really wanted to test myself and see whether I would be able to perform under demanding conditions. Do I want to sort of stand here for the rest of my life answering exactly the same questions? And do I just want to be buying other people's books of photographs and reading their adventure stories? Or could I perhaps go and have my own? Jason grew sick of servicing other people's adventures by selling them wide-angle lenses so they could better chronicle their amazing war and wildlife experiences. Sometimes they'd come into the camera shop with thousand-yard stares like they'd seen things that Jason could only imagine. I'm on a country lane somewhere near Ipswich and I'm about to see Michael Allen, who ran the camera shop where Jason worked. Michael? Hello. Thank you. There were people that came in. There's a company nearby that run trekking adventure things where they all jump in a big old vehicle and go tootling off somewhere. Mm. Used to come in with their broken cameras covered in sand. When he joined us, he was a geeky, spectacle-wearing young fellow. But throughout that eight years, the way he progressed mentally and physically... He started to ride a mountain bike. That then progressed to his running in every morning and running home every night. It's about nine, ten miles morning and night. They just changed. Were you always somebody who wanted adventure, even when you were really young? No, I had a, a very strict and controlled upbringing. My family were very religious. They were Jehovah's Witnesses, in fact. 
and they were very strict even for Jehovah's Witnesses. So it must have been being a, a Jehovah's Witness child wearing, and I don't know what you used to wear, but I presume you look like a kind of Amish, you know, like driving around on a mule or whatever. And was that, not was that... quite. Ipswich isn't quite that backward. We, you know, had a few cars and so on. Right. But, but, um... uh, but, but I bet it was, you know, being that child and that kind of controlling yeah. life that made you think, God, wouldn't it be fantastic to go mm-hmm. to war? You know, when I look back on that sort of period of growing up now, it would be very easy to be quite sort of bitter about it and think about all the things that I missed out on. You know, we didn't celebrate birthdays, we didn't celebrate Christmas, and I was always the outsider at school. I was the only Jehovah's Witness quite often. And so on the days when we had religious assembly, I would sit outside the school gym with my book. Every person in the school would file past me, and then when the religious assembly was over, I'd have to get up and go in. Jason finally got the money together and he went to Colombia to have an adventure as a war photographer. He got to photograph the left-wing FARC rebels and then he wanted to meet the other side, the right-wing paramilitaries. Just as he was wondering how he might manage that, he met Marilyn at the bus stop. She told me at the time that she was travelling back from Cali, one of the large cities, and she'd been buying clothes and she then sold them on to her neighbours. So I kind of got the impression that that was her life. And you fancied her? Of course. This seemed like sort of Christmas and New Year rolled into one. This attractive girl who I was, you know, very keen to get to know better. And you were a man who'd never had Christmas? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, quite, yeah. So I explained to her that I was working on this book project and trying to cover the conflict from as many different perspectives as possible. And I gathered from her that she knew some paramilitaries in her area and she had friends who were soldiers and they have a spare room. Jason started flitting between the two camps, Marilyn's friends, the right-wing paramilitaries and the left-wing FARC rebels. He was there to document the occasions when they blew each other up. Being with three soldiers for about an hour while they searched a vehicle for a bomb and walking 25 metres away and 30 seconds later it explodes... Two of them had their arms blown off. One is ripped open from throat to crotch. His intestines are in the road. The other guy's legs are shattered. He's still alive. Being able to photograph that was a big test. And a week later, I was in a firefight on the same road and bullets were whizzing around. And I don't remember feeling scared. I felt excited. I felt exhilaration and wanted to make pictures, wanted to work. So I, I was feeling as though I was kind of on the right track to becoming a conflict photographer. But also... Not- Oh, my God, they're all dead. I'm leaving Colombia and never coming back. Because I've got to say, I think that's what would go through my mind if everybody I was with had died. No, I remember thinking, well, this is the real test. But shortly after Jason took his first good war photographs, he ran out of money. The last time that I left her family, she wrote me a little note saying, don't forget me, you're part of the family now. And I still have it tucked away somewhere. So you came back to England? Mm-hmm. Came back to England and found a job stacking shelves in Tesco's on the night shift, very glamorous, which I actually found incredibly difficult after having been dealing with, you know, FARC rebels out in the jungle to then have sort of the 
shift manager who's sort of five years younger than you telling you that you're putting the beans on the shelf the wrong way around it's quite difficult to maintain a good sense of humor yeah it? it's like the deer um, hunter did she used to do kind of dangerous things in the storeroom just to kind of not not particularly no but i had to do it for a few months in order to get enough money to pay off my debts and buy the next yeah. air ticket back to columbia did you ever lose your temper with the younger boss and say well, don't, don't you know what i've seen well i mean didn't sort of put it quite like that but i would sort of regale the other workers with little tales of what i'd just been up to This is Duncan Gosling. He was one of Jason's Tesco co-workers. I think everyone kind of looked at him with a bit of a, yeah, right, <laughs> of course you have sort of thing. And didn't believe him? To some extent, because some of the things that he said seemed a little far-fetched to people that live around here. Like what? What would he say? And where would you be? Would you be, like, in the storeroom? We'd be in the canteen, in the storeroom, on the shop floor, so anywhere really but it was all about the gunfights he'd been in and around and seen why do you think the people here were you know different to to jason why did they have sort of different i think it's just the way people are here it's just very clicky i mean it's country suffolk people just do their job and that's it anyone that goes and does anything different they come back with a very bad attitude towards them i think maybe it's just jealousy that they know they can't go and do it or they they're that stuck with what they're doing now that they can't have an interesting life why do people feel stuck i don't know i guess it's the situation with how most people are that work in there at the time that they all you know had families and had settled down and it was not within their grasp to drop everything and go and live a life of intrigue and interest because <laughs> they had to pay the mortgage and... yep that that's what i'm doing now so yeah Eventually, Jason got enough money together to return to Columbia and Maryland. Before his months in Tesco, Marilyn had said that she just vaguely knew some right-wing paramilitaries. But now that their relationship was deepening, she told him something different. She explained to me at this point that she was involved with the paramilitaries so that she had been to their training school in the jungle and as soon as I started to understand this I was very excited but so I asked if she'd been in combat and she said that she had and that about 15 on one side had been killed and about 25 on the other side and her best friend and another girl had been killed in that first firefight and I asked her about the experience whether it was exciting whether she enjoyed it and, and so on and did she say she did enjoy it? Yes, I mean, she said it was very exciting and she seemed to be quite keen on handling guns and that she joined the paramilitaries for the adventure. And, and you must have said, well, you know, I'm doing this for the adventure. Exactly. I, I imagine that that was why, even without our great communication skills, she kind of identified with me and what I was doing. And can I hazard the guess that a young... What, she was like 22, 23 at the time? A young, good-looking woman with a gun was kind of attractive to you? It was. Jason found himself so enticed by the idea that Marilyn was an actual right-wing terrorist paramilitary, he decided to take her to a hotel so they could consummate their relationship. That night she came and she had dinner with me at the hotel and she stayed the night. And that was the beginning of our relationship. 
But the next day, she decided that she had something on her mind that she needed to unload, basically. So she said, I have almost like a bit of a confession to make to you, but I need to tell you a bit more about what I'm doing at the moment. I'm not out in the jungle with the paramilitaries anymore, but I am part of an urban cell, and our job is to investigate people who are maybe informers or traitors or perhaps the enemy cell operating in the town. And what do you do with them? And she said, well, we, we kill them. So very, very kind of straight, you know. How do you kill them? Well, normally shoot them in the head, sometimes kill them with a, with a knife, or sometimes if they're in a busy place in a nightclub or something, if they go into the toilet, we inject a hypodermic syringe full of air into their vein because then when the air bubble travels to their brain, they, they die. It's very quiet, no big fuss, no gunshots, and so on. What was the look on her face when she was telling you this? Just kind of quite serious. The way she was talking wasn't as though she was telling me anything strange. She'd grown up in this place where violence is so commonplace. And I think in many ways that she didn't think there was anything especially odd about what she was doing. So what did you say? Well, I was just quite fascinated. I listened and just asked her any question that sort of popped into my head. Because I wasn't angry with her, I wasn't being judgmental, I wasn't thinking that she was doing anything wrong. This was a war, and in war zones people kill each other. So the only difference here was that this was a girl, and a girl that I was trying to be involved with. And a girl that you'd slept with the night before. Mm -hmm. Quite... I hate to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because it's a difficult question. When, when she was telling you this stuff, did you think it was kind of kind of hot? I did. I basically felt as though I was living in a movie. And I was thinking, wow, this is the kind of thing that the people I went to school with and the people that are just finishing stacking shelves in Tesco's, this is the kind of thing that they would go to a cinema on a Friday night and watch. And this is real. She would come into the room, take her gun out of her belt and put it on the bedside table, get undressed, get into bed. And I found it very difficult to separate the reality and the fantasy. I did send an email to a few of my friends saying, well, you know that girl that, I'm, that I've been trying to get together with down in Putumaya while I'm, we're together, and it turns out that she's an assassin. And what did they email back? I don't honestly remember, but nothing... Lol. Yeah, yeah, they're just kind of, you know, sort of typical response. You'd, well, I don't know what a typical response to that, to w, an email like that would be. I think it's you know. WTF. Yeah. One of the people Jason boasted to was Duncan, who was still at Tesco. He said that she was really good-looking, and when he realised she'd got these alleged kills, he was quite dumbfounded at the time. But weirdly, and he said this himself, weirdly kind of turned on by it. I should imagine you would be, because it's a, a powerful female figure that he's obviously with, and there's that aspect of it that he was unaware of, and then I guess the whole danger aspect makes it more appealing. I'm not sure how cool it is that if I found out that my wife had confirmed kills. <laughs> be a um, bit scared. This is Eros Hoagland. He's another freelance photographer in Colombia that Jason had become friends with. He's like, I met this girl, she's great, and she's involved with the paramilitary and, you know, a great contact, all this and all that. He's really outgoing, so he talks to everybody, which can be good, can be bad. I was a little unnerved by it in Colombia. I try to keep to myself just because it's such a war of intelligence, you know, not so much of combat, but it's really kind of everybody's listening. I mean, it's cloak and dagger kind of thing. So did he say you've got this girlfriend... 
Marilyn, she kills people, it's really exciting. Did he go that far or not that far? No, he didn't say that, you know, verbally, but it was totally evident that he was on this high hanging out with this woman, which I can understand. It's just, in my mind, it was the wrong place to be hanging out with her. Well, it's it's funny because, you know, back in Ipswich, if he'd fallen in love with some girl who went out, like, you know, getting drunk on a Friday night and stabbing people... That wouldn't be so cool. So, so I wonder whether it was something to do with being in Colombia as well. And I think Jason was not so much falling in love at that point, possibly falling in lust. And it's certain that as time went on, he developed more and more feelings for, as far as he knew, she was just working with the paramilitary, which is par for the course down there. Everybody's doing something for somebody. And to be involved with a fighter didn't seem ridiculous for some reason to Jason. I wanted her to become part of my story, part of the book. And I wanted to interview her. And a Greek documentary team were coming out and I was fixing for them. So I said, well, why don't we do an interview with Marilyn? They were very keen on that idea. So in the interview, I asked her some quite tough questions really i mean i started with why did you join the paramilitaries and she told me i wanted to see if i had the capacity to kill well that was a bit of a shocker because you know would hope that maybe saying well you know we need to get rid of the fart i needed some money for the family yeah but no but to see if i had the capacity to kill and then I said, how was it, the first person you killed? Oh, it was very difficult, she said. You know, he was on his knees begging, saying, I have a wife, I have children, please don't kill me. But my commander said, if you don't kill him, I'll kill you. So she said, I shot him. And I went home and I couldn't eat and I couldn't be near my daughter and I couldn't talk to anyone for a few days. But my commander came by and he said, well, if you can kill once, you can kill many times. And he took her out to kill someone else. And I said, well, and how is it now? She said, well, now I don't really feel anything. And at this point, she'd killed somewhere around 10, 12 people, something like that. So I said, well, is there anyone that you wouldn't kill if your commander told you to? Would you kill your friends? She said, oh, oh yes, I killed one of my friends. What was the circumstance there? She said, oh, well, my commander investigated him and said that he was a FARC rebel. And if I didn't kill this person, the target, potentially the target would come and kill me. So she said, I went in the night and I killed him. And then the next day I went to the funeral and stood next to his family. And I felt a bit bad because I'd caused this grief and pain and so on. It was very difficult watching her answering these questions because this voice I'd become very accustomed to and very familiar with the way that she spoke. And now she was talking about things that were quite hard for my brain to compute. Even so, they carried on going out together to restaurants on one occasion with Jason's friend, Eros. I was angry, not so much at him being with her, because, you know, I'm like, that's your decision. But when he shows up to dinner with us, bringing her in the middle of town, you know, the waiter's coming up and he's, like, totally nervous. It's obvious everyone knows who she is. And it was the restaurant in the hotel we were staying at. But they would walk up and take the order, and Marilyn had a swagger to her. You know, by that time, it's like a gangster walking in somewhere, kind of commanding respect without really saying anything. But you could tell that she enjoyed a bit of the fear she struck in people, I think. (laughs) 
Was everyone acting like really, you know, politely around her in case she killed? Oh, yeah, them? for sure, for sure. They were, you know, they they were. It was like walking on eggshells. You know, not super exaggerated, but you know, you could feel it. And it's the type of place where you see a group of men across the other table, and you're thinking, well, who do they work for? Do you think that she actually enjoyed killing people at this stage? I don't think by this stage necessarily, but, you know, maybe she had become a little addicted to it. Because one evening I was sitting outside her family home with my arm around her and I felt that she had a gun in her belt. So I said, oh, are you working? And she said, oh, yes, I've been trying to find this girl for a few days and I I keep missing her and it's very frustrating. Because she'd go off on her motorbike looking for this girl, come back in a very bad mood, you know, she couldn't find her. And the next day she came back and she was happy, came in the next one. I said, oh, did you find the, the girl? She was like, yep, yep, killed her. So I said, oh, where's the body? Is it in the morgue? Because I thought I would go and photograph it. I'm trying to piece the story together. She said, well, no, we cut her head off and we cut her arms and legs off and we threw them into the river. I sort of looked at my breakfast and, you know, wanted to say, well, these eggs are wonderful, darling. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll do the dishes. You go and have a rest, you know. But... I mean, you must have at some point around this time thought it's not quite as exciting and like being in a movie as I'd thought a few weeks ago. Yeah, I asked her, well, who was this person and why did you kill her? This was the day when I got my wake-up call, basically, because she said, well, a friend of mine who knows what I do paid me $300 to kill her because she thought that her boyfriend was having an affair with her. So now she's not killing people as part of the conflict or for any reason that I could possibly find an excuse for. She's killing them purely for money. She also, in this instance, convinced a friend of hers to come and hold the girl down while she cut her up because she couldn't do it on her own. So I said, well, how did you pay him? She said, no, no, I told him that this woman was Fark and was the enemy and persuaded him. And she seemed to think that that was quite funny and she'd been rather clever to do this. And this was the day when I started getting upset and angry with her. On one occasion, she pulled her gun out and she pointed at me and she said, aren't you scared of me? And I said, no. If you're going to kill me, just do it. But if someone offers you money to kill me, I'll give you double to let me get to the airport, which made her laugh and diffused the situation. But at this point, I started saying to her, well, what are you doing with the money that you're making from these killings? Are you thinking about starting a new life for you and your daughter away from here? She said, oh, no, I buy jeans and makeup and I spend it all. So one possible glimmer of hope disappeared again. And I said, well, how do you expect your daughter to grow up knowing right from wrong? With you as her teacher, you'll kill your own friends, you're killing people for money. When did you forget the difference between right and wrong? So then she got very defensive. Who are you to judge me? You know, where do you come from? Is there a war in your country? Are people being killed there? You said, but that doesn't seem to be it anymore. No. And I said, well, there's also three and a half million displaced people in this country. Some of them sell drugs, some of them steal things, some of them are prostitutes, but they're not all using it as an excuse to go around killing people. There wasn't really any sort of shouting or anything like that, but I couldn't really be with it. Sometimes she would come and it was obvious that she'd been crying. And that time when I left, she gave me a note which said, I'm sorry for the way I am. 
And when I left that time, that was the last time I saw her. I'm sorry for the way I am. Not I'm sorry for what I've become, or but for what I am. I wonder whether that means, you know, that was just the way her brain was. Almost like she can help being a killer. Maybe. It's something that I've spent a few years trying to fathom out. Jason left Colombia. He went to Iraq to cover the war, but he kept an email contact with Marilyn. And then, one day, the email stopped. So he went back one last time. I got back and I stood in the hotel room where we'd consummated our relationship. And I stood looking in the mirror in the bathroom and basically plucking up the courage to drive out to her home and find out what the situation was. So I got there, her father came out, and he immediately looked years and years older. And so we shook hands and he said, I guess you know what happened to the girl. So I said, no, I have no idea. But immediately realising it was something bad. So he said, oh, she died last year. And I had to ask him did she die as a result of her work? And he said, yes, we think so. He then took me to see her brother, who had identified her body. But he, when he came home from identifying her body, he had a stroke. He hasn't walked, talked, fed himself, been to the bathroom on his own, anything since that day. So they effectively lost two members of their family that day. And it was a result of what he saw when he identified her body? Yes, That night, I found my fixer and asked him if he could find someone who could tell me what happened to Marilyn. So he found a woman who knew her, and she told me that the paramilitary group suspected her of informing on them. So they took her from her home, and they crushed her head with rocks in the street and fired bullets into her body and then left her body there as a message to other people not to inform. That was the body that her brother identified. I decided that I wanted to go to her grave and put flowers on her grave with her mother and daughter. Marilyn was buried on top of her older sister, who was also murdered, and next to her younger sister, who died from natural causes. So I was photographing her mother. She's buried three children in the same cemetery. It was a tough day. How old was Marilyn when she was killed? She was 25. So did you see Jason when he began to realise that going out with a psychotic assassin wasn't such a great idea? I believe I got an email from him just telling me about Marilyn's murder. And how was that email? Sad and angry. Just kind of another chapter in his cinematic life. I spent some time at her house, you know, with her little girl, with her family, and she was delightful. She was really, you know, a warm, friendly person. It's just surprising how people can switch different personas on and off because, you know, on one hand, she's just being just this really super cool person. And on the other hand, she goes out and kills people. But, you know, such is the duality of our species, I suppose. When Jason got back to England, he put together a book of photographs of Marilyn. He brought the book in to show me. Do you want to describe some of the photographs you took of her? I have a picture of her scrubbing all of the family's clothes on a rock down in the river with her daughter and nephews and nieces playing in the background. Then another day playing with her daughter in a swimming hole 
in the same river, picking her daughter up and throwing her ahead of her into the water. And what does she look like in the photographs? Will you describe how she looks? She was just an attractive girl who looked after herself and probably was very good at her job because she didn't attract too much attention, you know. And I found it very strange to see the children playing on the bed next to her and her cleaning the gun because these things are not meant to be in the same place. One-month-old babies and people cleaning the gun that they use to kill people for $300 a time. I don't know, it is quite hard even now to describe them, really. You were a thrill-seeker, I think, back then, and I wonder whether you still are. To a certain extent. I spent a couple of years in Iraq covering the conflict there, which was hard work, and so I really think that I perhaps became quite addicted to that sort of lifestyle, and I, you know, get bored very easily now. Do you think at any point you were in love with Marilyn? I think, honestly, now, depending on how you define being in love, I think it was more in love with the situation than her as a person. John Ronson, Living in a Movie, was presented by the writer John Ronson. It was produced by Laura Parfitt and Simon Jacobs. Today in Parliament follows in a few moments and after the midnight news we continue a history of the world in a hundred objects today featuring a stone tool two million years old. And the series isn't solely based on radio. You can follow it online as well. Well, he's a dumpy little fellow. A history of the world. It's not really very practical. You can get closer to the stuff that history is made of on our website. Picking it up, your first reaction is it's very heavy. That's where you can add your own object to our growing digital collection and help us to tell our history of the world.